Romans chapter 9, we are still here, and we're dealing this morning with a subject called the freedom of God. Now, this smacks, this smacks us right in the face of Westerners in the 20th century because if you look throughout our society, everybody is talking about their rights. This is my right, this is their rights, this is your rights. Everybody has rights, and everybody wants their rights to be heard. But it doesn't seem that anybody is speaking out and saying and telling people, what are God's rights? Where is the freedom of God in all of this and we're going to learn about it today and talk with it, talk about this basic subject today. Because what this does, we have to look from the viewpoint of the recipients that are receiving this letter, not from our 20th century viewpoints. We must look at it from the viewpoint of whom Paul is writing to. He's writing to Jews and to Gentiles. That's what we need to understand. And we don't need to get into the mindset that we have all these rights and even thrust them upon a holy God. The entire passage that we're about to read tells us that God is totally free to do what he desires and what he wills to do. So that is what we need to understand And we're going to review in just a moment some of the things that Jews know. But let's look at verse 14. It says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded to uh, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand and for glory. What we need to understand, and I want to do just a quick review of the Old Testament. If y'all have time, we're going to go from Genesis to to, uh, Malachi today, if y'all don't mind. I am teasing. But I want you to understand exactly what the Jews knew when Paul was speaking to them about the freedom of God. They had been drummed this into their little brains from the time that they were children to they were adults because it was the practice of Jewish men, Jewish fathers to tell the next generation, 
the wonderful works and the laws and the commands of God. In doing so, they were also telling them about the attributes of God and who he was and what he does in the world. And so when Paul is writing to these Jews, they knew these very things I'm about to read to you. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Psalm 33, 8 through 11 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the, 40, uh, the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And then in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says this, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth, listen, are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, the Jewish people whom Paul was writing to knew these things and knew that God does what he pleases. So Paul, having stated that Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated, and we talked about that last week, because God always works by the method of election from Genesis all the way through Revelation. We see that God always works by the method of election. Paul anticipates an objection. Look at verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part by no means? Paul gives a rhetorical question and then he answers the question himself. What he's saying is this. Will you claim, O Jewish person, O Gentile, knowing that God is righteous and does all that he pleases, is actually acting with injustice? That he is actually acting with unrighteousness? For that is what the root word here is. For that word, when it talks about injustice, it's, it's the root word for righteousness. The Latin text says this, is there iniquity in God? That's what he's asking. Do you really believe that God is sinful? Do you really believe that God is unjust? And what does Paul say? 
he uses strong, strong Greek words here. He says, God, really, he's saying, God forbid. In other words, he is trying to get them to understand, you, oh Jewish person, who knows the character of God, who knows there's no sin within God, if you are questioning him about what he does and whom he loves and whom he doesn't love, you are on absolutely dangerous ground because you are blaspheming the name and the character of God. And they knew that that is abhorrent. They know that they should not do that because being blasphemous, according to the Old Testament, people who blaspheme the name of God were actually stoned to death. So as they're reading and seeing and hearing these words, he is confronting them with saying, look, this ain't the way you raise. We're raised, guys. You know the character of God. There is no injustice in him at all. Now flip this up to the 20th century mind. When you throw this out to the 20th century person, what do you hear from them? That is unfair. You constantly hear that. No one has the right to be unfair, do they? We always want fairness. And they scream for their rights. We don't want God have to have his right to govern as he pleases in dispensing grace. That's what they're saying. They're saying that everybody, everybody, God has to save everybody or at least give them the chance to save everybody. But folks, think about this. We who are creatures of dust, Isaiah describes us as grasshoppers. Do we have the audacity, the audacity to proclaim that God must bow to our whims in dispensing fairness we are absolutely on dangerous ground because if we could tell God to do anything and that he then must adhere to our whims that would make us God that would make us sovereign and our will greater than his you have to understand that there was a created being who did that before one who said I will exalt myself above God and what did God do God kicked him out of the heavens and so when we pronounce God you must be fair you're basically on the same level as Lucifer because you're saying I will exalt my knowledge and my will above your will O God and you must be fair dangerous dangerous ground that's why Paul resoundingly says no God forbid. And so now the next verse, as we go to the next verse, that fortifies his argument and it destroys the objection. Why? Because once again, he pulls out the big guns. He goes to Moses because Jews reverence the words and the teachings and the writings of Moses. So what does he say? For he says, verse 15, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
What's Paul doing? He's going back to the Old Testament teachings that they knew and that they understand. And he's quoting Exodus chapter 33. Moses has been asking God at that point, when you go back and read it this afternoon, go back and read this section and you'll see that God, Moses is asking God to show him his glory. And God in his mercy and compassion does not show him his face because he says anybody that looks on me is going to die. But he says, I'm going to let my goodness pass in front of you. So what happens is, is that God is acting out of grace to show mercy and compassion to Moses. God's mercy then if it must be mercy, if it is to be mercy, must be free. In other words, God freely chose to show Moses his goodness but would not show him his face or Moses would have died. Understand, folks, that was an act of grace because God didn't have to do anything. So what we go and what we find is that here it is that that Paul is appealing to Moses and he's saying to these Jewish people, look, God's going to have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, compassion on whom he wants to have compassion. And it's not based on conditions at all. The, sur- uh, the source of mercy, the source of compassion, the source of grace, they're found in the free choice of God. So now he's going to go to this argument in this and notice where he goes. He lists two human activities. The exercise of the will and exertion or striving or working. These are two singular present active participles. Now, when that happens in the Greek, folks, I'm just going to tell you as you're reading it and looking at the Greek, I always have to look up what a participle is. You know, you know I'm not good at English. I'm just not. I don't know it very well. I always have to go back and remind myself. It's kind of like I'm not good at math. I've told you this before, three types of people in the world, those who can do math and those who can't. So I have to go back and listen to this, you know, list this as what is this participle? What does that mean? Well, it's a word formed from a verb. It's a word formed from a verb, like going, gone, being, been. But it's used as an adjective, working person burned toast right there's adjectives there burned toast I used to tell uh, this story about a man who said my wife worships the ground I walk on because every morning she brings me burnt offerings so burnt toast here's what the words mean it means this of the one willing or the one of the one running This is what he's describing in this verses. This is the individual nature of this passage. We need to understand that because there are some that have said this is referring to nations when he's talking about Jacob and Esau and there's nothing about individual election. No, that doesn't fit here. How can nations will or run? We have to understand. So what Paul is trying to say to them, these are singular things, talking about individuals, and what he is saying is this, you can will all you want, you can exercise it to its capacity, you can knock yourself out trying to work for God's approval, but in the end, 
it will be God who shows mercy. No sinner, now listen, no sinner has any right whatsoever to say to God that he owes them grace and mercy and compassion. They don't. If grace and mercy are owed, they are no longer grace and mercy. God has the absolute freedom to give grace and mercy and compassion to some and not to others. And how does he bolster his argument? I want you to look at verse 17 and verse 18. Notice what it says. For the scripture says, remember, verse 16, it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For, because the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So what Paul's doing is contrasting Moses to Pharaoh. One receives mercy, but the other is used as a vessel to show God's power throughout the whole earth. It was the total intention of God from his freedom to do so to pour out his wrath on the Egyptians. Now, what we have to understand is that we get down into the weeds, folks, in this part. This is called a double predestination. And it has been debated to its meaning for centuries. Let me give you what it means in its essence. There are those predestined to eternal life. There are those predestined to eternal death. But how this is to be taken is the question. Now, I want you to look at this. This verse says he has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he wills. What does it mean by hardening? This is getting into this double predestination thing. One thought is that God intervenes in the life of the elect and creates saving faith in their hearts by grace. By the same reasoning, though, God intervenes in the lives of the unsaved and he creates fresh evil in their hearts to ensure that they remain evil and reprobate. Folks, I don't hold that view. That is a hyper-Calvinist view. That is what that is. There, uh, there's a different position and I think that R.C. Sproul reiterates it nicely. He says there's the positive-negative Viewpoint In the case of the elect, this is what he's saying. God positively intervenes in their lives to rescue them in their corruption and from their corrupt condition. He intervenes. That's what we've been preaching, what we've been teaching since I've been here. God intervenes. God opens the heart of a person to believe. That's what he does by his spirit. As Jesus says in chapter three, the spirit blows where it wills. We don't understand it, don't know, but he does. He does to open up the heart of people to believe in him. That's what we need to understand. So in the case of the loss, God works negatively insofar as he passes them over. He passes them over. Y'all remember the death angel and the Passover? They put the blood on the, on the doorpost. Did everybody have 
blood on the doorpost? Not everybody did. But the angel passed over those that were protected by God. In that instance, the rest of them experienced death. In the case of us, understand this, that God intervenes with us and the rest of them are then passed over. He does not create fresh evil into people. Why is that? Because they're already evil. They're already wicked. You see, God leaves them to their own devices. And here's the truth. They are judged not because God put more evil in them, but because of the evil already present in them. Please read your Old Testament in Jeremiah. The heart is what? Desperately wicked. Who can know it? Desperately wicked. So, understand this, however. It was God allowing Pharaoh to be raised up. Not only did God allow Pharaoh to continue in sin, God actually raised him up for that very purpose. God gave him a purpose and a task. So God was involved in this. We need to continue to understand this. When we're talking about double predestination, we understand it. He says that he is hardening Pharaoh's heart. So doesn't that sound like he's creating more evil in his heart? No, no, no. Scripture over and over again tells us that God by divine decision deals with rebellious sinners by giving them over to their sin. We find that in Isaiah. We find that in Jeremiah. We find it through the Old Testament. We find it through the prophets. But when we get to the New Testament, we see that happening in Romans chapter 1. We've been through that. If you go back to chapter 1 real quickly, what happens in Romans chapter 1? Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And if you jump down, what does he do? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their body, among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. That's what he's saying. God removes the restraints. Pharaoh's heart was already hard. God removed that restraining of evil and allowed Pharaoh to continue to become even more hardened in heart. So to make someone more wicked, to harden someone's heart than they already are, are is this God just takes his hand off of them. Here's a commercial. Can God do that to, to nations? Folks, don't say in your mind Oh, I'm looking at the sins of America and God's going to bring judgment. It's already happening because God is slowly removing his restraining hand and people are getting more hardened and hardened. Now, think about this, folks. When God removes his hands, when his restraints are removed from the sinner. 
it's not an act of injustice. This is what Paul is trying to answer. It's not an act of an injustice, but it's a demonstration of his perfect judgment. He judges men and women as sinners. So being given over to sin is a judgment on sin. God is being perfectly fair, perfectly fair in giving an evil person over to more evil. He, in a sense, is hardening the already hard-hearted sinner. Being fair. But as we go through the scripture, he comes to the coup de gras. Y'all ever know what that means? You have to kind of look it up, you know, when you hear people say that. Basically, it's the final blow. It's the shot given to kill a wounded animal or a person. In this case, this is the coup de gras. This is the final kill shot to the argument that we can freely choose God on our own accord. Verse 19, listen to what he says. But you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God showing his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So what is being said? What is being said? If God shows mercy on whom he will and hardens whom he will, how does he hold us accountable for our sin? It's a simple answer, even though people try to make it really, really hard. He can do that because he's the potter. He's the creator. That's it. He is the creator. In this whole passage, Paul never talks about man's freedom, only the freedom of the potter. For a pot to question a potter is kind of absurd, right? You're on the spinning little little wheel, you're molding, you're making it, and all of a sudden, the pot speaks and says, Yeah, I don't like the handle right there. Can you put it on the other side? I don't like the way you made the lip of my bowl. Can you do something different? That's kind of absurd, is it not? God is free to do what he pleases, and we are the clay, we are the pots. Can God prepare vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath according to his freedom to do so? Well, yes. But why are there vessels of wrath and destruction? I I believe James White gives a a great uh, three logical possibilities to this question. We have to look at it from this point of view. We can say all vessels are prepared for glory. But we know that's not true because Pharaoh was a vessel prepared for destruction. The second thing we can say is all vessels are prepared for destruction. But we know that's not true because we have the elect. Third thing we have to say is this. Some vessels are prepared for mercy and some for destruction. And it is the the potter who decides which are which. 
There is no fourth option. But some say there is a fourth option. They say the pots prepare themselves based on their own choice. The pots prepare themselves. Now, do you see the absurdity of that? The pots, that would be like you going to the potter's wheel and throwing down a clump of clay and saying, make yourself, get after it, make it. It doesn't happen, doesn't happen. Why? Pots don't have the capacity to do that. They don't have the ability to do that. Pots are pots. That's what we just have to understand. So the conclusion here is one that has to be pondered upon, thought upon, and received and accepted from the potter who has the freedom to do what he wants to do. God has prepared people as vessels of mercy, so there must be then people who are prepared as vessels of destruction. Because as James White states, there is no demonstration of mercy and grace where there is no justice. There is no demonstration of mercy and grace where there is no justice. If there was no justice, no one would understand what grace and mercy are. But let's get back to Pharaoh just real quickly. Why did Pharaoh act like Pharaoh because Pharaoh liked him some Pharaoh Pharaoh liked being Pharaoh he did not want God he did not want anything to do with the one true God listen to Exodus chapter 5 afterwards Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh thus says the Lord the God of Israel let my people go. I wish I could give you my Charlton Heston voice, you know, on that movie, you know, the Ten Commandments. Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. You see what he's saying? Who is this Lord? He's not God over me. I don't want that God. I am God. I will not let Israel go. You see, vessels of wrath like being vessels of wrath. They basically follow their own nature. They run from God who exercises authority over them and we see that within our society as people just continue to do more and more and more evil and wickedness. We need to understand that. They don't want God. Paul just said that in chapter 3. There's none that sees God. No, not one. There's none that understand God. They don't want him and they run. And here is the point, folks. And I've shared this illustration with you before. Then there is this huge swimming pool and there is 50 people in this swimming pool. A giant hand comes out of heaven towards them and it written right across there, it says, God Almighty. You know what they do? Do you think they would swim towards him? 
Absolutely not. They would swim away from him. And we don't want that. This is God Almighty. This is what the state of the people that are prepared for destruction are. They don't want it. They want to do their own thing. They want to be controlled by their own lust of the flesh. And so they will flee. And it's God's prerogative then when that giant hand come by and take some out of that mess and bring them to a place of righteousness. That's what he does. Why? Because he has chosen to do so. It's his freedom to do so. And this is what Paul is trying to explain in this whole thing. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's what he's saying. And here's another truth, and we'll close with this, okay? The difference between the saved and the reprobate is that a sovereign God changed the heart of the reprobate and turned them from being God rejectors into lovers of God at his prerogative at his good pleasure who are we to question that if we are to boast we boast in the Lord we don't have any reason to boast in the fact of saying I did that Mm, no God did that according to his freedom and we have no right to shake our fist in God's face and say that is unfair the potter has every right to mold a lump of clay into what he wants it to be and this is the whole theme of chapter 9 he's trying to get them to see and to understand God has the freedom to do what God wants to do our response bow in submission to the Lord that whatever he brings comes our way undoubtedly he has allowed sometimes we don't like it but we still bow in submission and say oh Lord you have the freedom to do with me because I am yours a slave of righteousness you have the freedom to command You have the freedom to do. You have the freedom to cleanse. You have the freedom to sanctify in any way you desire. So I submit to your freedom. That's where it leaves us. That's a good place to be. That is a good place to be. Knowing that God in his grace is no wise going to cast us out that he's going to work everything together for good. That's what Paul had just stated in the chapter previously. To them who love him. So it's a good place, my friends. And I pray that if you have thought that God is unfair, that you think again and understand God. God can do what God wants to do. And as it pleases him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have the opportunity to look at a, a tough subject, but knowing, O oh Lord, that we don't understand everything, and we still have questions. But Lord, thank you that you allow us to ask them. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to struggle. Thank you, Lord, that you engage our minds so that our minds will be renewed so that we may think on these things so father I pray that as we as this congregation goes through this place through, through, from this place and into this community Lord I pray for them that they would realize and understand 
all that you do, you do because it pleases you. And Father, may we give you praise and glory and honor because of that. And Father, I pray that as we see how you are working in the lives of people around us, Lord, that you would help us to continue to share the gospel. And Lord, that your word will go forth and you will accomplish all that you plan for it to accomplish. So Father, work in these people's lives, in our lives. Work, and as we share the gospel, draw men into your, men and women, boys and girls, unto yourself. Use us, O oh Lord. Use us for your purposes. We plead and we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.